Let me just give you the advance notice on our final hymn this morning. We're only singing three verses of it, so when we get to that, you just be alerted to that. Thank you for your great singing to the Lord. It's a beautiful hymn. I invite you to follow as I read in Matthew chapter 10. We're reading instructions to witnesses. We looked last time at the first 15 verses of Matthew 10 about some fairly specific witnesses, the 12 apostles, and there are things about their errand of sending the good news of Christ out that did apply to us. But we're still looking at what it means to be a witness. Interesting thing is, the New Testament Greek word for witness is marturion. You wouldn't struggle probably to understand that the word martyr comes from that root word. What is a martyr? You say, well, it's somebody who dies for the faith. But we're all marturion in the light of the Scripture. We're all witnesses. A martyr is one who gives the ultimate witness of his very life for the Lord. But listen now as I pick up at verse 16. I'm going to read through 33, and we'll have one more time of looking at this chapter as well of instructions for witnesses. Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, nothing hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. This is the Word of God. Try to imagine yourself today somehow the parent of twins 
twins who are about to graduate from high school, a boy and a girl. This is an example just to make a point with you. Both of these young people plan to attend the same large secular university in an urban setting. I'm thinking of a place like perhaps Temple University in Philadelphia. Surely you would want to sit down with them and you'd want to talk because now they're headed out into the big bad world and you would want to talk about several things, I hope, moral temptations that they ought to be aware of, the possibilities for crime in a city campus and a large urban area like Philadelphia is, the possibility of anti-Christian teaching in the classroom. And I would think that your phone calls during the next several years to these students from your home would include some forms, hopefully not too overbearing, but as a parent, you probably couldn't help getting in the warnings and say, are you being careful? Are you on the alert? Are you, you know, you know how we parents are. And you'd want to warn them. Well, then let's suppose, take it further, that these twins graduate. They've finished now with college, and they're ready to embark on careers. And they both choose high-risk vocations. Now, I try to stretch my mind to think what's just about the highest-risk vocation I can think of. We're going to say that your son is becoming a Navy SEAL. He's gone through military training, and he's not just in the military. He's in the absolute upper echelon of those who are sent out on secret missions around the world, striking against terrorism and right out there in combat situations, dangerous situations. And your daughter, let's say, decides she's going to be called, the Lord is calling her to be a teacher. And she goes to teach English as a second language in a closed country that doesn't allow open missionary work, but she's in a place you know where there is persecution against Christians and where Westerners have to watch out because of random acts of violence or terror against them. So here you are again. You got them through college, but what are your phone calls and emails going to be like for the next years? Be careful. Watch out. It's dangerous what you're doing. I think there's something of that in what we're looking at this morning from the Word of God. We saw last Sunday how Matthew 10 contains this lengthy discourse. In fact, the whole chapter just about is a discourse from Jesus. It's the longest discourse since the Sermon on the Mount from him, and there's others to come like it in the later part of the gospel. A discourse where he begins to talk about what it means to be a witness in the wider world. And he starts with the twelve who are called apostles here and tells how they will go with a special endowment of his power and ability. And I said there are some things that are unique to them because there are no apostles today. They were special. They were given a unique endowment of, of miracle power that we don't believe is given to anyone in exactly the same way today. And they were also given a restriction to go to the lost people of Israel who had not yet called Jesus Messiah during his lifetime. So there were some unique things there. Our commission to be witnesses has differences. And you wouldn't see this as you just glance at this passage. In fact, in my Bible, as the English text is set up here, the verse I started with, verse 16, is tagged at the end of a paragraph. It isn't even in a new paragraph division. And yet I think at that point, if you get the sense of the text, 
you understand that the instruction of Jesus to witnesses begins to expand and, and move outward in its scope. It's not just to the 12 anymore. In fact, in just a couple verses, verse 18, there are things happening or predicted to happen, have witnesses being brought before governors and kings. Well, that didn't happen to the apostles in this short-term missionary journey they were making for a few months or whatever during Jesus' ministry. It happened much later. And as you go on and you begin to see what's, what's being instructed here about families, turning against one another and all of the different kinds of sufferings and persecution, you realize he's talking on a big scale. He's talking about things that will take place beyond the cross and resurrection, beyond even the day of Pentecost in the early church, and even beyond that, down to our present day. This is a little bit like some parts of the Scripture when we see more than one thing being fulfilled. You know, you see the short range quick fulfillment of something, and then there's like another mountain range behind the first one. And without necessarily changing channels, Jesus talks about the second mountain range. Because he knew prophetically that ministry in his name was going to continue for a long time. I'm sure he knew all about the 20th century and the 21st century. He knew how long his church would have to endure what it would have to face. Every book of church history written, and there's some of them are big, fat books about what has happened in the church. Jesus knew every word of them about what would happen centuries ahead as his people went out into the world with his message. Well, I'm saying to you that I believe these instructions for witnesses apply to us, and they apply to our everyday lives. They're not just instructions for apostles. And they're not just instructions either for formally placed or formally called missionaries. They are the sending instructions of the Lord, the warnings of the Lord, the cautions of the Lord to his beloved children as they go out into a dangerous society with his message. And he says, watch out. There's trouble ahead. But at the same time, he gives us some powerful assurances about what witness in his name will accomplish. That's why I would call this section of Matthew 10, 16 to 33, promises for the persecuted. I have two broad points today with some subpoints under each of them. But the first big point I want you to see is this one, that Jesus promised that ministry in his name would always be done under pressure. Ministry would always be done under pressure. The first 15 verses, he even said, well, they could expect, the apostles could expect at least indifference. Uh, Perhaps that was the worst, but they would expect that. But it heats up, you see. The farther you go into this, the more the crisis level, the more the intensity of the opposition becomes. It's not just indifference anymore. It's actually families, fathers giving children over to be killed and these kinds of things that, that he mentions here. Governors and kings being involved as, as God's people are even accountable before the Gentiles for their witness. And a foremost point we need to make on this is, as far as witness in our everyday lives is to recognize Jesus saying here, why, why this opposition? Well, a simple reason. Further into the passage in 24 and 25, he says, the servant is not above his master. You will live in this atmosphere of difficulty, 
coldness and even outright violence against what you proclaim. Why? Because I did. And in fact, of course, these disciples hadn't even seen yet the rising pressure that was coming. If you really trace what's going on in Matthew, only in the last couple chapters have we begun to see the Pharisees starting to kind of ask him the pointed questions and, and disagreeing with him. It's going to get a lot worse in a few chapters to come as that tide is even rising for him. So why do we face it? Because he faced it, and we're his. He says, do you really expect that somehow it's going to be easy for you when, when this is what I came against? And then in verse 22, he even says, you will be hated. And sometimes that hatred is going to seem irrational. You will encounter a person, and, and you will not understand, why does this person cold shoulder me? Why do they react to me? Why are they not receptive to me? And you might begin somewhere along the line to understand it has something to do with the fact that they've pigeonholed you as a Christian. And they don't really care to know who you are individually because they think they know who your Lord is, whose banner you carry, and that's all they want to know. And so because they would persecute him, they would persecute you. Now, you know, there's a real irony here in this thinking about ministry in the name of Christ proceeding always under pressure. You think, why did Jesus make it so hard? You know, wouldn't it have been a lot easier to win the world if there wasn't pressure, if there wasn't communism, if there wasn't whatever, you know, that has is, that is made worldwide barriers, Isla, you know, radical Islam and all these things. Well, here's the amazing irony. It's under pressure that God's Word prospers and flourishes and brings its greatest results. You see, what was going to happen here, even in the, in the pages of the Bible, is that the news about Christ and the message of Him as a Redeemer who shed His blood as the substitute for sinful men and women isn't something that's just going to stay as a squabble in a sectarian way among the synagogues of Palestine by persecution coming, by people actually getting killed and and some fleeing from that, it's going to go out. And as you read the book of Acts, you know, if you want to have draw a picture of Acts, just draw sort of a hub with spokes going out in all directions. That's the book of Acts. As people were, were criticized and were punished and were killed and arrested, what happened? Hundreds of them went out all over the Mediterranean world, ordinary people and apostles alike. And as they went out, they witnessed. And the gospel flourished and prospered. God uses persecution and pressure and even tragedy and even, even his people being killed as a vehicle to take his word forward and do its work. It's a well-established fact. The harder that opposition and tragedy comes against the church, the more the church grows. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Well-established saying. You know, we really ought to be afraid of the day when it's too easy. We ought to be afraid of the day when the whole society says, we agree with your message. For that's the day when the work of Christ languishes. Now, we find something we need to speak to here under this theme of Jesus promising that ministry in his name would always be under pressure. It's verse 23, and it's an unusual verse that deserves some comment. As Jesus said here, I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. 
What did he mean? New Testament scholars, some of them will tell you that this is possibly the most difficult verse in all of the Gospel of Matthew to understand. It's a chronic puzzle place where the scholars love to wrangle. We do know that whenever Jesus spoke about his coming in this gospel and most other places, he was speaking about his return to history, his glorious second coming in which he would come on the clouds with his angels. Matthew 25 speaks about it in several ways. And come in glory and draw the curtain of history to a close. Well, what can that mean if that's what's in the picture here? And he says, you won't finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. One way some people have said we should understand it is, well, they said Jesus thought this group he was talking to, these first century disciples and apostles, were going to go out, and maybe this errand that he was sending some of them on was going to take a while, a couple of years, and and during that couple years' time, he would go to the cross and die and rise and ascend to heaven and then return in glory in two years. Well, there's a problem with that, of course, a big problem. And the big problem is that Jesus hasn't returned in two years, did he? He hasn't returned in two millennia. And if that's what he meant when he spoke to them, then he was wrong about his own return. There's another alternative that's suggested by some scholars that I think does have some weight of meaning to it, although I don't think it's the whole answer. That's the alternative in which people say, well, maybe he referred to a coming that was not exactly that second and final coming, but it was his coming as the judge of God to bring a divine judgment upon Israel that actually has happened already and happened not too long after he spoke in 70 A.D. when the Romans came as the vengeful hand of God to smash the Jerusalem temple and end its worship and end the domination of Israel in that whole land and their whole system of worship. And it was, of course, seen as God's judgment against them for rejecting the Messiah. In other words, the second alternative that people say, maybe that's what he meant. He was going to come as judge, and and the errand to reach these tribes of Israel would still be going on when that happened. I think there's truth in that. Jesus could certainly be seen as the judge seated at the right hand of God and the The events of 70 A.D. were a judgment from God. But yet it's difficult to see that as the whole meaning of this because, again, whenever he speaks of his coming anywhere else, it does mean that final historic coming. Actually, there's about seven different positions on this. I'm sparing you. I'm just going to give you one more. (laughs) Uh, And uh, some of them are so minor that you don't need to worry about them. But Dr. Jim Boyce, I think, took the right position, and I would certainly side with him in a third alternative here. And Boyce said this, he wrote in one of his commentaries, you, the, the statement, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes, quote, he said, probably is best understood as just stating a general truth. In other words, it means that human witnesses of Christ will still be at work finishing the task of making him known far and wide when he finally appears. Evangelistic outreach is never going to be complete. There's never going to be the day when we can say, aha, we've reached every nation. We've got representative churches everywhere we think they should be strategically. Now we can pull back and and no longer have to be concerned about world evangelism. That day's never coming. 
until the king appears in his glory suddenly and visibly in history to bring down the curtain of human events as we know them, his witnesses will be taking his name forward and persecution will be following them right up to the end. All right, let's look at a second point today. And again, some subheadings under it, but here's the second point. And I would make it this way, that's to say Jesus guaranteed that positive results will come from persecuted ministry. If you notice the tone of everything in this chapter, he's speaking of some really awful things. You know, people being thrown in jail, being put on trial, families smashed and divided, you know, people calling the Son of God the devil. There's a lot of awful things going on here that he's discussing. But yet the whole tone of this chapter is one, is very calm. And he says, don't be frightened. Three times he says, fear not. You see, it's very different to live your Christian life if you can proceed into it in the knowledge that spiritual opposition is absolutely normal. Your Lord has told you that. It may even come within the ranks of your own family and relatives. And by the way, I'm not even going to emphasize that aspect today because I want to put it for more special examination next Sunday as we come back to this chapter, Lord willing. But Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Now that doesn't have to mean people with automatic weapons or people putting you in dungeons or even killing you. You can experience that as a 16-year-old in the halls of a high school. You can experience that as a man or woman in business who tries very hard to exercise ethical standards in all cases within a company, even a company that might claim to have Christian owners but expects things to be done more on an expediency basis Monday through Friday. When Jesus tells us here in Matthew 10 that divisiveness and pressure and opposition against the gospel is on account of him, don't you see that this ought to give you and I a great sense of relief? You know, when you speak a witness for Christ or you're somehow rejected or pushed aside for the model of your life, it's not because you blew it. You know, it's not that you went out and said, I'm really going to try to witness to this person, and you got a very cold reception, and you thought, oh, I must have done it all wrong. How could, how could that have been right if I got that reception? No, you probably did it quite right. But you got the reception that Jesus would get, that his message gets, and it's on account of him that you were rejected. First Peter chapter 4 has a place in verse 15 where it asks us to make sure that we're not suffering for our own foolishness or, or even for being wrongdoers or something like that. It's in, in other words, you know, don't go claiming you're being persecuted if it's your own stupidity or your own crimes that have caused people to reject you. But then First Peter 4.16 exhorts you this way, but if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Give praise to God that you bear that name. You belong to a great honor society. In other words, if there are little scratches in your skin that the world has put there that are just somehow faint marks of the scars of Jesus Christ, be honored. Be honored. 
that you remember in the book of Acts, the first arrests when the apostles were put in jail and they got out of jail and they said they, they went on their way rejoicing that they could suffer for his name, that they could have a little scratch where Jesus had had the deep wounds of men. Now, Matthew ten sixteen contains an odd-sounding bit of advice. It's at the beginning of our passage. You might think I'm jumping all over the place, but I think it belongs here. And Jesus gave this advice. He gets all these animals in here. Let's see if we can figure out what he's saying. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. I don't know if, in fact, snakes are any shrewder than any other animal, but they, they've always sort of had that reputation, haven't they, of being you know, cunning or, or sneaky as they come up on their prey, you know, very conniving. That's not actually a positive attribute. And then here are doves who are probably the most harmless of all uh, animals in the bird kingdom. They're gentle. They don't harm anybody. They're easy to catch, easy to harm. Well, how do you get something out of the combination of the way a snake is and the way a dove is? Uh, Maybe you need to use your mind on that one a little bit. But I think Jesus is saying, look, if we're going to go into this threatening world as unarmed sheep, let's not be stupid sheep. Let's at least use the common sense that God has given us. Notice that he even says here, if you're being persecuted, verse 23, in one place, flee to another. Don't be dumb. You know, don't just stand there and say, okay, I'm a witness for Christ. I know you don't like me, so kill me. No, he said, get out, of, get out of town if you have the ability to do that. Goodness, use your mind. But don't be manipulative or deceitful or descend to the level of those who come against you in their animosity. You know, you can be, have an angry, irrational person arguing with you or mistreating you because of the faith And there's a sense in which you are going to be tempted to come down to that person's level and react the way they're reacting. Now, if you do that, that person has kind of won, haven't they? Because they've lowered you from the high ground of the standards of Christ. There are times when a disciple must be wise enough to just lose a battle and walk away, perhaps, in order to win the war. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I want to give you three solid reasons that are in this passage real quickly why you need not be afraid to be God's witness in a hostile society. First of all, from chapter 10, verses 26 to 27, and I'll restate what's there this way, the truth of God is always going to triumph. You know, isn't it easy for us to think, well, here I am in my career, in my relationships with other people, trying to live for God, trying to be honest, trying to present Christ wherever I can, and nobody notices. In fact, they just trample on it and push it aside, and and it isn't accomplishing anything. Well, I think Jesus Christ is saying to you, look, whatever goes on, whatever is said or done for me or against me is not going to remain hidden. It will become known. And those who have spoken against you and mistreated you, that'll be known, and God will deal with them. And where you've done something, maybe consistently prayed for somebody or given a quiet witness or, or gotten a person aside and say, hey, let's study the Gospel of John together. And nobody notices that except that one person. That's going to be trumpeted from the housetops because you did it for the glory of God. 
Some of you who would never, ever dream of preaching a sermon have done acts of witness for Christ that I believe in, in a manner of speaking are going to be put on an IMAX screen before the throne of God and say, look at this. Look for the glory of God, what this quiet believer did in their life. The truth of God is always going to triumph. Secondly, your soul's integrity matters more than your body's safety. You see that? It's here in verse 28 especially. If you lived in the Sudan today, you'd be in a country where it's illegal to be a Christian and where Islamic fundamentalists would be happy to kill you with the government's sanction. If they didn't kill you, they'd make you their slave. You might be scratching your head saying, I haven't heard about this on the news. I'd like to know why you don't hear about this on the news. It's one of the most untold stories of our day. The Sudan has been a killing field for Christians, but the news just doesn't report it. Well, I don't think the day is necessarily ready to come for that in America, or you and I are going to face that. And yet, there are so many things we're afraid of, afraid that somebody's going to look down on us, afraid that we just don't fit in, afraid that we'll be criticized or labeled. Jesus says, don't fear those whose worst power is that they can kill your body. You think that's so bad, and it does seem bad, but they can't kill your soul. Rather, he said, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. He wasn't talking about Satan. He's talking about God. Fear God who has the ultimate power over everything about you in eternity. Do you want to turn your back on him and run from him and disobey him in order to get some guy over here who really can't do anything all that great for you or against you to be pleased with you? What absurdity. In worship, bow low before him who holds the awesome majesty of the universe. Fear him in holy fear, not servile fear that crawls on its belly. Worshipful fear that obeys this great God. And you'll find that whatever anybody else can do seems pretty small. Finally, know that God is entirely sovereign. It was in verses 29 and 30 that he emphasized this. Apparently, sparrows were, were common birds, just as common then as they are now. You know, they're all over the place by the thousands. They're tiny little undistinguished birds that apparently were caught in nets and sold for poor people to eat. They were so common and they could be caught so easily that a poor person that couldn't eat anything else could go buy a couple sparrows. Boy, McDonald's hasn't invented anything with sparrow sandwiches yet, but... Maybe it's coming to the budget menu. I don't know. You know, think of this. He's saying that the least consequential critters in all of God's creation, there's so many thousands of them. And he says, a sparrow doesn't fall out of a tree to the ground, but that your father knows it. He includes that other image there of the hairs on your head being numbered. We won't go there, but we could say a lot about that one, couldn't we? Easier to number some of us than others, of course. But what is he saying? He's saying God sees everything. Do you honestly think that you're caught in some situation of living for truth or witnessing for truth in a schoolroom, a dormitory, an office, a neighborhood where God has placed your life and he doesn't see it? It's impossible. He sees these little things. 
And yes, the sparrow does fall to the ground. By the way, it doesn't say he keeps the sparrow from falling to the ground any more than he necessarily will keep you from suffering some kind of harm as a witness. It doesn't say that won't happen. It doesn't say you won't get sick or be persecuted or even die in the course of witnessing. But what it does say is that there cannot be a lapse in divine sovereignty in all of that. Not possible. Paul knew that. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 18, and believe me, if anybody ever had opposition in Christian witness, it was Paul. He wrote there, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Believers in Christ, our witness needs to be a lot more bold and a lot more fearless Because there's ultimately nothing that can harm us. God's sovereignty is our ultimate guarantee that we will reach our final reward by death, by life, by difficulty, by ease, by any path. He's sovereign over any life that witnesses to him. Now, there's more insights in this chapter, and I'm going to hopefully spend time next week. But the final promise for Jesus, I'll just let from Jesus, I'll just let stand before you here, and that's verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. You're called to be a martyr. A martyr is a witness. Someone whose total life is devoted to showing and telling Jesus Christ. You know that little saying that says something like, everywhere you go, tell about the gospel. And if it really becomes necessary, use words. Is your life doing that? All testimony given for Christ leads to his testimony about you before his heavenly Father. Let's be his witnesses in this difficult generation he's called us to. Father, we ask that you give us courage, perseverance, trust in your sovereignty, in your upholding ways. We don't face nearly the difficulties some others have, but yet it's real to us what we do face. And so, Father, I pray that you call us to be faithful that Christ might be known here and far. For his sake, amen.